0: Rocket Money has over five million users and has helped save its members an average of seven hundred twenty dollars a year, with over five hundred million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to RocketMoney.com/Wondery. That's RocketMoney.com/Wondery. RocketMoney.com/Wondery.
1: This is a special edition of America Changed Forever: The Life and Legacy of John Lewis. This is America, Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Usually on this broadcast, we look only to ways America is changing. This week, in a special broadcast about how it has changed and is changing, we're going to look at change as seen through the life of one man, both as part of an historic movement and as an individual. Many of the men and women who pushed the civil rights movement forward in the 60s are long gone. Some, like Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers, of course, murdered when still young. Others, who got to live long and productive lives, like Charles Evers and the Reverend C.T. Vivian, left us just in the last few days, including one who was still changing our lives and our laws to his last moments, Congressman John Lewis. Doing the heavy lifting for this special broadcast is CBS News Radio Washington correspondent Allison Keyes. Allison, good to talk to you. How are you?
0: Hi, good to talk to you as well. I'm honored to be a part of this.
1: You talked to some remarkable people about John Lewis.
0: Yes, I've spoken to a lot of amazing people. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi joined us to talk about how Congressman Lewis has been known as the conscience of Congress.
2: As much as he had been beaten and as much as he had fought injustice and seen it, seen that injustice, he always had that gentleness who challenged our conscience, not only in terms of living up to high standards, but also behaving in a way worthy of the, uh, the people we were trying to uh, help.
0: Former Ambassador Andrew Young, who was a good friend of his, talked about how Lewis was an icon from the time that they met when he was in his 20s. We talked about how the Black Lives Matter movement is learning from Lewis's legacy and how that movement has gone global and what needs to be done in November. And we also talked about Bloody Sunday. That's the day that Congressman Lewis was nearly killed on that bridge in Selma.
3: He was an icon when he was 20 years old. (laughs) 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 <laughs> because I rem- what I remember is being on Fisk University's campus in Nashville, Tennessee, and they said that's John Lewis, and he's going around testing the restaurants to make sure they remain desegregated and that they're serving everybody. So he he followed up in detail. Uh, he didn't just march. Uh, a demonstrate when the press was there and when it was popular. He, uh, he followed up when nobody was looking. I mean, it, it, he was single minded in his determination desegregate America and help us get the right to vote.
0: I also spoke to Roland Martin, who's a journalist and historian, who talked about how John Lewis was a revolutionary, which a lot of people don't think of him as because they see him as this icon and, and an elder statesman. But as Martin noted early in his career when he was doing the sit-ins and going through being beaten as a freedom rider, Lewis was a revolutionary.
4: The young John Lewis was the radical revolutionary, but the older John Lewis was Operating within the very system, within the party infrastructure. It's important for the new generation uh, to be encouraged by uh, the elders when it comes to their work because that gives you fuel. To continue the
0: process. I also spoke with Freedom writer Joan Mulholland, who was a white Freedom writer who was taken to prison. She talked about how during their last couple of years, their relationship was mostly big hugs. They were very good friends and family as far as she's concerned. And she says what she would say at the memorial for Lewis,
2: the best way to honor and remember John is to vote. He led by example, and to speak out whenever you can. And to remain nonviolent and love your enemy.
0: Smithsonian Secretary Lonnie Bunch, the first black man to hold that position, talks about how important Lewis's legacy is.
5: So what excited me was to see sort of these younger people of all races saying protest is not about destruction. Protest is, in, in my mind, the highest form of patriotism because you're doing everything you can to help make a country better. And I could see John Lewis smiling.
1: A lot of people who we will be hearing from through you in this hour. But let's go back all the way to beginning to a very unprepossessing childhood, it would seem, and the boy from Troy. <music>
0: It was 80 years ago on February 21, 1940, when John Lewis was born in rural Alabama in a town called Troy. John was a third of ten children for his sharecropper parents, Willie May and Eddie Lewis. A precocious child, John hoped to grow up to be a preacher. Starting at the age of five, Lewis would practice preaching sermons, one imagines to the delight of the chickens in the yard. Living in the harshly segregated South, John's parents counseled him to stay out of trouble and out of white people's way. But an incident at the library in Troy, later in his childhood, would lead Lewis down a different career path. Here is John Lewis, reading a letter he wrote to his younger self for the CBS News program, Note to Self. Young John Lewis,
6: you're so full of passion. In your lifetime, you will be arrested 45 times and your mission to help redeem the soul of America. In 1956, when you were only 16 years old, you and some of your brothers and sisters and first cousins went down to the public library trying to get library cards, trying to check out some books. And you were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only, not for colors. I said to you now when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to continue to speak up, to speak out. I could no longer be satisfied or go along with an evil system. You became so inspired by Dr. King and Rosa Parks that you got involved in the civil rights movement. Something touched you and suggested that you write a letter to Dr. King. You didn't tell your teachers, you didn't tell your mother and your father. Dr. King wrote you back and invited you to come to Montgomery.
0: Dr. King would affectionately call Lewis the boy from Troy. Meeting Dr. King and Rosa Parks ignited a passion in young Lewis that would burn for the rest of his life. It was a thirst for justice, freedom, and equality. Here is Lonnie Bunch, the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution and the founding director of the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture.
5: Here is somebody who, as he said, grew up in Troy, Alabama, um, in the heart of segregation, Um, and who was told, like many people, don't get in trouble, told, like many people, this is just the way it is. And what John Lewis's impact is, is that he helped people realize you don't have to accept things the way they are, Um, and that you can challenge and help a country live up to its stated ideals. I mean, that's what I love about John Lewis, is that John Lewis never said, This country is something that's horrible. This country is something that we need to turn our back on. He simply said, We will help this country find itself. We will help this country stand up to the ideals that it's always said it is. In essence, we will help America become American In
0: 1999, John Lewis wrote the book Walking with the Wind, a memoir of the movement. Pike County, Alabama, invited Lewis to return to the same library where he had been denied a card because of the color of his skin decades earlier. Here again is John Lewis from CBS's Note to Self. John, thank
6: you for going to the library with your brothers, your sisters, and cousins. You were denied a library card. You were sad. But one day, you have been elected to the Congress. You wrote a book called Walking with the Wind. And the same library invited you to come back for a book signing where blacks and white citizens showed up. And after the book signing, they gave you a library card.
0: The journey that began in small-town Alabama for the boy from Troy would take him to some of the most important events in American history during the Crusade for Human Rights. Lewis organized sit-ins to end segregation, rode with the Freedom Riders, led the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and organized the March on Washington as a member of the Big Six. That's the civil rights leaders Martin Luther King Jr., James Farmer, A. Philip Randolph, Roy Wilkins, Whitney Young, and a 23-year-old John Lewis. Gil?
1: As a congressman, Lewis would joke that some of those chickens he preached to in the 40s and 50s listened to him better than his colleagues in Congress. And he would add the chickens were a lot more productive because they could at least lay an egg. You're listening to a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, the life and legacy of John Lewis. Welcome back to this special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, the life and legacy of John Lewis. I'm Gil Gross. On July 17th, 2020, two great leaders of the fight for civil rights in the 50s, 60s, and beyond died on the same day. John Lewis and C.T. Vivian, a friend, mentor, and colleague of John Lewis. Cordy Tyndall Vivian was a minister, author, and is perhaps best remembered as a close friend and lieutenant of Martin Luther King Jr. Here is CBSN anchor, Anne-Marie Green.
4: A funeral is being held in Atlanta for civil rights leader, Reverend C.T. Vivian. Vivian's friend and business partner, Don Rivers, said he was the most courageous and loving person he's ever
7: known. He lived a life of unselfishness and has never looked for or wanted any recognition. He truly lived by the Greek word agape, which means giving unselfishly without looking for
1: anything in return. CBS News Radio Washington correspondent Alison Keyes resumes our tribute to the life and legacy of John Lewis.
0: As a teenager, John Lewis wrote a letter to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., seeking his help to get into college. King sent Lewis a bus ticket, and the 18-year-old Lewis traveled to Montgomery, Alabama, and met Dr. King and Reverend Ralph Abernathy. From that day forward, John Lewis dedicated his life to the peaceful pursuit of civil rights. While attending college in Nashville, Lewis studied nonviolence and began organizing sit-ins to end segregation under the leadership of C.T. Vivian. Here is Greg Carr, chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies in the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard University.
4: So he, Lewis that is, Bernard Lafayette, Diane Nash and some of the folks who were at Baptist College, at Fisk, at my alma mater, Tennessee, then a State College for Negroes, now Tennessee State, joined with C.T. Vivian in what was known as the Nashville Movement, about a three-month uh, campaign that they waged in 1960 to desegregate Nashville. And it was that movement alongside the movement out of North Carolina with North Carolina a and Bennett College, the Bennett Bells heavily involved in that, that kind of formed the two tributaries that launched what become Uh, becomes the the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee,
0: SNCC. Eleanor Holmes Norton is the non-voting representative of the District of Columbia in the U.S. House of Representatives. Ms. Norton has spent her whole adult life fighting for the rights of African Americans, women, and all of those disenfranchised by the inequalities of our flawed democracy. Ms. Norton was an early member of SNCC while attending Yale Law School and worked in the Mississippi Delta during the Freedom Summer of 1964.
7: As a a member of Congress, uh, I'm one of of, of um, hundreds of members of the House and Senate who are feeling this loss, but I feel the loss in perhaps a unique way because John and I were uh, colleagues long before we came to Congress in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. John was was um, anything but a natural leader. Uh, he was, for example, not the first uh, chair of SNCC. Marion Barry was. Because Marion Barry, uh, who was from Tennessee and was an early SNCC uh, person, was far more political. John became the chair of SNCC, and he did so later on uh, simply by example. John led SNCC into situations where nothing could ta- be taken for granted and where everything was known uh because the demonstrations in the deep south involved um not simply uh angry uh mobs, there were armed white mobs, and there were police who were their allies.
0: Civil rights pioneer and former Ambassador Andrew Young remembers learning of the character and determination of a young John Lewis, who was already a civil rights leader when Young visited the Nashville campus of Fisk University in 1960.
3: He was an icon when he was 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> because I rem- what I remember is being on Fisk University's campus in Nashville, Tennessee, and it happened to be the week where the fraternities and sororities were all going through their uh, rigmarole for uh, Pledge Week or something. And everybody was running up and down the campus doing something, you know, hip and stupid at the same time. <laughs> and then I saw this group of about it's about six or eight young people who were going off the campus. They were walking across the campus going in the opposite direction of everybody else and there were 200 and some people probably at least on the campus in fraternity and sorority costumes or whatever they do and these group this group was going in the other direction and i said where are they going and they said that's john lewis and he's going around testing the restaurants to make sure they remain desegregated and that they're serving everybody. So he, he followed up in detail. Uh, he didn't just march uh, or demonstrate when the press was there and when it was popular. He, uh, he followed up when nobody was looking. And that's what I remember about him. And that was, I mean, it, it, he was single-minded in his determination desegregate America, and help us get the right to vote.
0: Eleanor Holmes-Norton was recruited to help organize the March on Washington. On August 28, 1963, hundreds of thousands of people gathered on the National Mall between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial in the District of Columbia in an awesome display of solidarity and advocacy for civil, economic, and human rights for African Americans.
7: A march that had was so unprecedented that no one was sure how even to organize it. We had no idea what, how, how many people would come to the march. When time came to go to Washington, uh, uh asked for a volunteer. I volunteered because I knew that if I was the last one to leave, I could fly to Washington. <laughs> and I flew, flew and one of the great experiences I have ever had was looking out of the airplane and seeing people for as far as I could look, seeing from on high that the march was going to be successful. And ultimately, 250,000 people came. That was more than had ever come to Washington for any event. It set the pace for every march, every demonstration you have seen in in uh, the nation's capital since. Uh, People were uh, excited to get to the Lincoln Memorial and uh, were not going to apparently just stand there uh, waiting for the time to, to go. And so they started to march and the leaders, the big six as they were called, the six leaders of the civil rights organizations had to run to get in front of their own march. Uh, <laughs> that's how uh, excited the people were about this march in Washington
0: john lewis 23 years old just seven years removed from being told to leave his public library because he was black took the stage and spoke to the quarter million people gathered in the shadows of the monuments and memorials and countless others around the world who watched his speech broadcast live by the new technology of the telstar satellite
7: Snick got together with uh john and various people i was not one of them but various people uh Collaborated and and it was uh, it was changed somewhat not not I must say a great deal but it it was changed uh, and even so among the speeches that were given that day I think it still was the most militant as we the word we used
6: we march today for jobs and freedom those who have said be patient and wait we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedoms gradually, but we want to be free now. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. We're talking about slow down and stop. We will not stop. All of the forces of Eastland, Barnett, Wallace, and Thurman will not stop this revolution, but we will march with the spirit of love, and with the spirit of dignity
7: that we have shown here today. Out of that march on Washington came the three great civil rights issues, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 65 Voting Rights Act, and ultimately the 68 Act. Uh, There is no moral compass uh, in the Congress uh, that can't even compare to John Lewis. I mean John Lewis was one of a kind. I would imagine that the the renewal of the nineteen sixty five Voting Rights Act would be at the top of John's list at the moment. And his death has caused that issue to become even more prominent.
1: Gill? You're listening to a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, the life and legacy of John Lewis. Welcome back to a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, the life and legacy of John Lewis. I'm Gil Gross. CBS News Radio Washington correspondent Allison Keyes resumes our tribute to the life and legacy of John Lewis.
0: March 6, 1960, Bloody Sunday. It's a day whose violent images of police brutality and blatant racism is seared in the national consciousness, especially that of black people. Former Ambassador Andrew Young shares the untold story of how Bloody Sunday almost didn't happen.
3: Nobody much knows this, but the few of us that were involved... Bloody Sunday was almost an accident on our part. We were supposed to march on the second Sunday in March. Well, <clears throat> that was a leap year. So it wasn't the seventh, wasn't the second Sunday. It was the first Sunday. So none of the big preachers, Martin Luther King, Ralph Abernathy, Fred Shuttlesworth, Joe Lowry, none of them. they were all had to be in their pulpits on the first Sunday. Uh, but the people from around rural Alabama, uh, Came, you know, uh, to Selma, and I was over there with John and uh, Jose Williams and James Bevel, and uh, we were calling Dr. King, and he said, "Well, you can't march without me," and we said, well, "I think we have to." There are two or three hundred people that are coming in from around the state, and we can't disappoint them. And they're coming with their backpacks, and they're ready to march. And I said, but I, I, I had uh, come in uh, on Highway 80 and I had seen the troopers blocking the roads. So I said, they're not going to let us get far anyway. Uh, they're probably going to just turn us around. They might arrest a few people. We'll be able to march when you get here next Sunday when we're supposed to. It was pretty much chaos, but it was one of the most powerful demonstrations that we had in all of the 15 or 20 years that we were involved in the movement. Uh, And uh, the reason for that was that it was cold in the North and there was a rainy, freezing rainstorm. And so everybody was home looking at television pretty much like they are tonight today. Uh, It it was on shutdown for that Sunday because of a, a storm And so everybody had been looking at this movie, Judgment at Nuremberg, uh, which was talking about Hitler and uh, the Jews in Germany. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as soon as it was over, they cut to breaking news, and they showed that the same thing almost that happened in Germany was here happening in the United States of America. And people had the same kind of, you know, disgust and, and... and and revulsion that they had from watching George Floyd die. People are not all racist. They just, they don't know and they don't want to know. But when something like bloody Sunday or the death of George Floyd happens and they have to face it and they have to see it, it brings out the best in America so far. And, uh, I think that that's, that's been the reason why demonstrations and uh, have been able to focus a lot of energy and give a lot of people a way to say, I'm not like that.
0: Decades later, John Lewis returned to the scene of Bloody Sunday, the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. It was built in 1940, the year Lewis was born. Smithsonian Secretary Lonnie Bunch was there with him.
5: Anybody who doubts the courage of nonviolent protest is take a look at what happened on Bloody Sunday on that bridge in Selma. Um, And I'll tell you, when I walked across that bridge with John Lewis, I remember thinking, you know, you really can't see what's going to happen until you get to the top of that bridge. And at the top of the bridge, you could look down and see all those state troopers. And and I thought to myself, I would not have had the courage to keep walking. I would have seen that and said, are you kidding me? Um, But there he was. Not just walking, but leading.
0: Here's Congressman Lewis recalling Bloody Sunday in his own words.
6: Yes, I was beaten, left bloody and unconscious. But I never became bitter or hostile. Never gave up. I, I believe that somehow and some way, if it becomes necessary to use our bodies to have redeemed the soul of a nation, then we must do it. Create a society at peace with itself and lay down the burden of hate and division. Dr. King would say violence and evil, it must stop someplace along the way. And we became disciples of the movement, disciples of Martin Luther King Jr. and of the great teacher to do what we could to leave our society better. Then
0: we found it. Congressman John Lewis. Gil? You're listening to
6: a special edition
1: of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, the life and legacy of John Lewis. Welcome back to a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, the life and legacy of John Lewis. I'm Gil Gross. CBS News Radio Washington correspondent Allison Keyes resumes our tribute to the life and legacy of John Lewis.
0: Before John Lewis returns to the Capitol to lie in state and be memorialized for his many accomplishments as one of the greatest leaders of our country, I had the chance to speak with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in an exclusive interview about the life and legacy of John Lewis and her deeply personal friendship with the civil rights leader. How are you doing after the loss
2: of such a good friend and colleague. For us, uh, John's passing on to, as he says, go home to heaven uh, is a a death in the family for the entire House of Representatives, especially the House Democratic Caucus. And so uh, we are very sad. Uh, We're happy for him. We know he's in a better place. Uh, He has peacefully uh, left us. He gave us a path, you know, to follow him, uh, but... It's very sad. How are you
0: doing personally? I know you worked together closely for so many years.
2: It's still very hard for me to talk about John leaving us. Uh, it was six months ago that he came to my office very privately and told me of his diagnosis. Of course, I was not accepting that, and uh, were make was making recommendations one way or another. But John knew what, uh, how he wanted to, uh, uh, to make his passage. And now he has six months later. It seems impossible, uh, but it is true. And it, it, we're going to have, uh, starting in Troy, uh, an ending next to his beautiful wife, uh, John will have a beautiful passing. Madam
0: Speaker, I've got to ask you something I've always been curious about. How did he get the nickname,
2: the Conscious of Congress? Where did that come from? <laughs> How did John always get the nickname, Really, not a nickname so much as a, des- a clear designation, uh, an imperative for all of us to be challenged by him on a regular basis, uh, the conscience of Congress, for us to always do the right thing and to be able to have a clear indication of what that was. And his barometer that he, how he indicated that was he always on a regular basis taught us. Uh, That there's a spark of divinity in every person, and that every person had to be respected in that way. But that as we all possess that spark of divinity, we had responsibilities to treat all of God's children in a very, very respectful way. Uh, We can do nothing less uh, than what uh, John has challenged us to do.
0: Madam Speaker, do you remember the first time he was given that honorific,
2: what, what had happened? Oh, it just seemed completely natural for all of us. I mean, we are in co- the Congress of the United States. Not many people have that honor. Maybe, not, I don't think, 13,000 people in the history of our country. Most of them white men, and then then. It, some of us came John and I came in the same class 33 years ago when we made a decision that we would have much more diversity in the congress and now we have uh, over 60% of our caucus are uh, people of color women and lgbtq community members so it was it was almost a, a natural thing uh, that we would always want to know what does john think sometimes we had to ask him Sometimes we knew better than that, that we would know <laughs> we would know uh, what our path should be. But just think of any subject when you talk about voting rights or when you talk about LGBTQ plus uh, anti-discrimination, when you talk about uh, children. He loves children. And so, again, any subject you can name, whether it was women's rights and the rest, it was about respect. He even respected people who did not respect him. They would later respect him. They didn't know it yet, but he always was a, a person of peace and love, and uh, you know, again, acted upon his conviction that we were all God's children and had a spark of divinity. So, so it was was it just almost went without saying. So I don't know the first time it was said, but it was certainly. Uh, uh, an imperative for all, us, of all of us to recognize the special privilege that we had to not only call him colleague but friend, and to serve with such an icon. What is your favorite memory of John Lewis? He told my grandchildren, and, he's, and this is one of his stories. My grandchildren loved him. In fact, uh, when he passed, and my granddaughter, who is ten, Bella, she was, uh, she said, she cried, and then she said, "Why aren't they reviving him?" Why aren't they reviving him? And we said, well, because he's passed on to heaven. And she said, well, then we ha- if he can't live, we have to make sure his ideas live. So I mean, a ten-year-old pick that up from him. But th- people think of him as you know very serious, and he was uh, very principled, and is and he was, uh, but he was also very funny.
0: What are you going to do without him in that body?
2: Oh gosh, I don't know. I am. I am. Uh, I'm so sad. I mean. So, Six months ago is when we found out about his uh, his diagnosis. And then five months ago, we find out about Corona. Two months ago, uh, George Floyd and so many things. And then to lose our John on top of all of that, it was as if God was giving us a message, appreciate life, no underutilized resources in terms of time and to follow his lead, his uh, virtuous circle to form a more perfect union? And how do we do that every day? And now now he's watching over us. Uh, my last conversation with him was the day before he passed. And I said, so you're going home to heaven. You're leaving us. You're preparing the way. Perhaps you've decided to go now so that you get up there and make sure we do everything right as to what what our challenges are now, because they are vast. But what is the most remarkable thing that i that I, I said to him in that conversation and in previous conversations that I had with him in the weeks before he passed was when he left Washington, the last thing he did was to go to the street where Black Lives Matter, the beautiful tapestry, really, on the street. And then he was photographed alone in the middle of that street. There was John Lewis. You see him on the bridge being beaten. You see him on the street Black Lives Matter, the connection to the future, from the past to the future of justice. John Lewis, the conscience of the Congress.
0: Here is Dr. Greg Carr, chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies in the College of Arts and Sciences at Howard University on the tenacity of John Lewis.
4: John Lewis is, uh, is an example of the human potential to resist and to endure and to triumph, and that what John Lewis did, we can all do. Uh, John Lewis uh, traveled to Africa, met Malcolm X along with others in SNCC. John Lewis was a citizen of the world. He, uh, He often talked about that. But in the country of his birth, he was determined to exercise those human rights in the framework of American civil rights. And so what we can learn is that our struggles are truly all interconnected. Uh, we can also learn that uh, when you see an individual, you're really looking at a movement. Uh, the media narrates John Lewis's uh, the speech John Lewis gave at the March on Washington as John Lewis's speech. It was a speech written collectively by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and so it's important to understand that John Lewis was not just an individual; he was part of a movement.
1: Gil, you're listening to a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, the Life and legacy of John Lewis. Welcome back to a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, the life and legacy of John Lewis. I'm Gil Gross. CBS News Radio Washington correspondent Allison Keys resumes our tribute to the life and legacy of John Lewis.
0: John Lewis died on July 17, 2020 at 80 years of age. He led an exemplary life of courage and humility. And even though as a child he'd been taught by his parents to stay out of trouble, he managed to change the course of American history by refusing to accept the systemic wrongs and grave injustices that have been part of our nation even before its inception. He chose to get into good trouble. Here is Congressman Lewis in his own words when he spoke recently with Gail King on CBS This Morning.
6: During the 60s, the great majority of us accepted the way of peace, the way of love, philosophy and discipline of nonviolence as a way of life, as a way of living, as something cleansing, something wholesome about being peaceful and orderly, to stand up and with a sense of dignity and a sense of pride and and never hate. Dr. King said over and over again, hate is too heavy a burden to bear. The way of love is a much better way. And that's what we did. We we were arrested, we were jailed, we were beaten, but we did not hate and we have changed America. And I truly believe what is taking place now and will continue to take place during the next few days and weeks is going to take us much farther down that road to society at peace with itself. Yes, I was beaten, left bloody and unconscious, but I never became bitter or hostile never gave up, I, I believe that somehow, in some way, if it becomes necessary to use our bodies to have redeemed the soul of a nation, then we must do it. Create a society at peace with itself and lay down the burden of hate and division. Dr. King would say, violence and evil, it must stop someplace along the way. And we became disciples of the movement disciples of Martin Luther King, Jr. and of the great teacher to do what we could, to leave our society better than we found it. Well, we all are human. We all are part of the human family. And it doesn't matter whether you're black or white, Latino, Asian American, or Native American, we're one people. We're one family. We all live in the same house, the world house. And as Dr. King said again, we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. If not, we will perish as fools. And I think what's been going on the past few days is living in truth, that we all are connected, mm-hmm. and nothing, not anything, is going to separate us.
1: This has been a special edition of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network, The Life and Legacy of John Lewis. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross.
4: The Hargan women seem to have it
6: all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing.